Marriage is the vortex of your life. If your marriage is strong, no matter what else is happening, your career is going down the tubes, your friend has turned their back on you, no matter what else is happening around you, if your marriage is strong, then you move out in strength because marriage is the vortex of your life. And it works the other way around, doesn't it? If everybody loves you and you have your house, the house you want, the car you want, the career you want, but your marriage is weak, you will move out into the world in abject weakness. Why is this? Uh, it's because of a two, two and one flesh union. And if the other half of you doesn't love you, or if the other half of you doesn't respect you, if the other half of you doesn't, doesn't care about you, then it's really, it's kind of like a, a, a partial paralysis, isn't it? You're trying to walk on one leg, and that never works. You know, and I, I look at it, obviously we've got a marriage passage in front of us this morning. Every marriage sermon that every pastor has ever preached is deficient because, I mean, I can't cover everything by, by a long stretch of the imagination. I'm Marriage, the most complex of human relationships is marriage. And so all I really can do in 30 or five, 35 or 40 minutes is speak in generalities to you. And, and you may be part of the 20% it doesn't apply to. Um, but I'll do my best this morning. We're nearing the end of Colossians. And if you have been with me in the sermon series, you recall that it starts out with these, such a lofty vision of Jesus Christ. We get this grand, majestic picture of Jesus, the one who has conquered Satan and the demons at the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. It's such a riveting vision. And um, that's what I get excited about preaching more than anything else, is to preach Christ. You know, sermons, I don't think sermons should be taking the top ten issues that people are wrestling with and and preaching on those. It really needs to be about Christ, first and foremost. Um, but we have passages like this in the Bible where this is where the, the rubber meets the road. Um, how do we flesh out our union with Christ, who's at the right hand of the Father, into our day-to-day relationships, especially into this crucial one? Um, you need to see Christ. You need to understand how Christ works himself out in your marriage. So that's what Paul is saying. That's what we're going to read here in our short passage. Colossians 3.18. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Look at verse 18 again. It sounds so completely ludicrous. <laughs> and many books have been written on verse 18 and on the parallel passage that's found that expands on this idea even more in Ephesians chapter 5. It sounds ludicrous. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands. To the vast majority of Americans, this language of submission of a, of a wife to a husband is misogynistic, oppressive, Neanderthal. 
ridiculous. And it's so out of touch with what is a flashpoint in our society, the role of men and women and gender. And uh, I mean, I know if you walked into All Saints off the street today, and this is what you knew the sermon was going to be about, and this was going to be the passage, you'd probably be inclined to head back out the door. But why don't we listen just for a minute? We believe this is really the word of God. This is the creator of the earth, his owner's manual, so to speak, on how life is supposed to work and relationships are supposed to thrive. And so let's listen to him and see if, if this isn't actually a better way of doing things than what modernity has told us. And in order to listen carefully, we need to go back to the first century and talk about the historical background. So let's start there. We have quite a bit of information on the typical Greco-Roman household in the first century based on the census data that has survived. Their marriages were very different than ours. We know that the average age of a man who was married in that day was 30. The average age of a woman was 18. She could be married as young as 14. We know that Not all, but most of the Greco-Roman men were, in a word, promiscuous. One Greek statesman is famously quoted as saying uh, that mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. And that's what the man got out of the relationship. He got a legitimate child who would keep the family line going. Or if he didn't, as you probably know, the failure to bear sons was often a cause for divorce. Not only was she much younger than he was, she, uh, she had no education. She couldn't vote. She couldn't be a landholder. She couldn't rule in political office. Roman law would, would allow her to divorce him, But it's very unlikely that she would because to be divorced in the ancient world was to be poor and destitute. I think the sad fact is, and this is a fact, that not a culture on earth thought that women were equal to men. Every single culture on earth said that she was his inferior This is even codified in first century architecture. So what I've read is that the typical Greco-Roman household in the first century was single story with a flat roof on the top. And the flat roof, call it a patio, a a gazebo, gazebo, how do you say that? (laughs) Whatever it is, that was the man's domicile. The patrifamilias, he stayed on the roof That was his place to go. The wife and the children, they never went upstairs. Or if you were in a very affluent Greco-Roman family, you might have a two-story house, in which case the husband would live on the second story, and the wife and the children and the slaves would live beneath. And and there in the architecture, you really hear and see exactly how things were. They were literally under his feet. The wife, the kids, the slaves were literally below his feet. A final point to know, and it is this. A wife would rarely join her husband and his friends even for a meal. 
She would not be allowed to recline at the table with them and eat together. She was, if she was allowed to come at all, she would sit on a bench at the end of the, uh, at the dinner table. And then she was expected to leave after, after dinner when the conversation began to cover more important affairs. So do you, do you get the picture? Their marriages looked way different than ours. When Paul said to this Greco-Roman man, this Christian husband in charge of his household, when he said the words in verse 19, you must love her. He said, you must love her. You must, he doesn't say you must rule her or you must keep her under wraps. That's exactly what all of the other moral codes would say. No, you must love her. And when Paul says that in verse 19, what you need to understand is nobody had ever said anything like that before in the history of the world. It was utterly revolutionary. So this is kind of curious. If you think about it, Depending on the cultural environment Christianity is situated in, it can come across as rigidly conservative, right-wing, or it can come across as very left-wing, very revolutionary and subversive. It all depends on the cultural setting that it's occupying. Uh, And so in our culture, we read passages like Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, and that's considered right of Attila the Hun, that wives are supposed to submit to their husbands. But in the first century, it was just the opposite, where the husband was an absolute monarch in his home and his wife had no, no rights. This teaching would have been considered way far to the left. It kind of all depends. And Jesus you may not know, know this about Jesus if you haven't studied him much. But without a doubt, Jesus said that women were equal in the sight of God. They were equally valuable in God's eyes. Yes, they have different strengths and weaknesses. Yes, they have different roles. But Jesus, more than any person in the world, elevated the status of women. I've heard it said before that Jesus was the first feminist. It's not a bad line. (laughs) Because wherever the gospel has gone, friends, it has elevated women. We really can't begin to appreciate just how, how good of news this passage would have been to the women who are listening to it, or likewise to the slaves who are listening to it. We'll talk about the slaves next week. But it's no wonder that women and slaves were the people who flocked to Christianity in the first four centuries of his existence. And even today, that's true. Do you realize this? That there's not a single branch of the Christian church that I know of where there aren't more women in it than men. In some very real sense, Christianity is a feminine religion. That's not true of Islam. That's not true of Hinduism and Buddhism. But it is very much true of Christianity, that it is good news for women. And women all around the world have always understood this, despite contemporary voices to the contrary. Now, the primary beef that feminists and egalitarians have with the church is that historically, we've only ordained guys to the pastorate and to the priesthood. And 
We've said that wives are to submit to their husbands in verse 18. So let's talk about that then. Uh, Why is that a reasonable thing to believe in? Many today want to say that all forms of submission are oppressive, but the Bible does not share that assumption. Uh, The Bible has lots of submission in it, and yet it never supposes that the group that submits is in any way inferior to the group that is above them. If children are to submit to their parents, as, it, as they are told, it doesn't mean that children are less valuable than their parents. Or if citizens are to submit to their governments, it doesn't mean that the government is more valuable. Or workers to their bosses. Uh, no. So what then does submission mean? Well, here it is. The Greek word in this passage means this. To voluntarily place yourself under the leadership of your husband. To voluntarily place yourself under the authority and leadership of your husband. Now, because there was such a vast power disparity between the two parties, there are a number of Christians today who say that that should no longer be done. Because of the vast power disparity, uh, Paul was just... he was just allowing that first century context to uh, work its way out, but we shouldn't be doing this in the 21st century. But uh, we still believe that this is binding, although we would admit it works itself out very differently in our marriages than it would in the first century. And the reason we believe it's binding, and I don't want to go into the great detail on this, is there is a theological rationale given for Husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter 5, where it says that Christ is, is like the groom and the bride, the church, is, is his bride and she submits to him. And we could talk about that more uh, later. But how, how should a wife submit to her husband then? I can think of lots of different ways, but a simple one is, is simply this. She submits to her husband by encouraging and empowering him and his leadership of the home. She says, husband, I'm really glad when you take the initiative in our family. I'm glad when you take responsibility for things and you lead with love. We, our family, doesn't flourish when you're a passive man, as are most modern men. When you leave it up to the wife to make sure that the family runs We don't thrive that way. I encourage you to lead us. That's what she says. Does it mean that she has no input into the direction of a family? Of course not. Uh, Or if if a husband rules that way, um, or if a husband leads that way, he's an absolute fool. The illustration that I would give, you know, the Bible speaks about Eve being a, a helper to Adam and I, I would illustrate it this way. Those of you who have um, kids, your junior high or senior high school kids, when they come to you and they say, I've got a big paper that I've got to write. Let's say I've got a paper on the Civil War that I need to write on. Can I get your, your help? And you answer them usually like this. You say, yeah, I will help you, but I won't write the paper for you. I will help you. In other words, I will channel my knowledge and my insight and my power in order to, uh, to, to enable you to succeed. Um, I'm not going to run it for you. See, helping is running, the, running your power through the other person. Helping is channeling your strength and insight and wisdom 
to and through them. And that's what a wife, I think, is supposed to be doing. She's empowering her husband when she uses her gifts and insights to help him make better decisions. Fundamental to all of this discussion, though, is this matter of trust. If you are letting him lead, then that means you are trusting him to lead, which is a very scary proposition. Last week, before I became hopelessly lost in my notes, I told you that there are two things forgiveness is and three things that forgiveness is not. Only I forgot to tell you the three things it is not because I was so lost. But one thing that forgiveness actually is not, forgiveness is not trust. Forgiveness is free. There's a sense that trust is earned. And and trust is really based upon two things, character and competence. And the hardest thing in the world to do, I understand this, ladies, is to trust a man who who lacks character, who lacks competence, to trust someone who has used their leadership for ill, not for good, and who has, um, who, who has led you in the wrong direction. How do we even begin to trust someone who has broken trust with us? Or similarly, when someone is in a position of authority and they abuse their authority, it becomes very hard to trust any authority ever again. And I've seen that many times before. I've, um, I can think of, of women whom I've known who um, their father very much abused his authority. And it's very hard then to ever trust a man again if you've grown up like that. I want to say this in absolutely no uncertain terms. That the kind of submission I'm talking about here, that a woman should never suffer physical or psychological abuse from her husband. That is not the kind of submission I'm talking about. Um, And if there's any husband in this room who has done that, then he must be held accountable. And we will hold him accountable. Christ, who is the groom to the bride, the church, he never belittles his wife. He never hits his wife. He never... He never demeans his wife. And if that, is, if that is you and if that has happened to you repeatedly, then you know what this, you're far more likely to actually keep your mouth shut and never speak up about it and make excuses for him and never say a word about it. And I am telling you right now, please, please speak up. Because that is not the kind of submission I'm speaking of, about at all. But trust is hard. Even if you have the best husband in the world, to trust him to lead is very hard. It's kind of like, why is it that we love, why are we much more comfortable driving rather than flying? (laughs) Because when we're driving, our hands are on the wheel. When we're flying, it's being being led by somebody else, right? And you're 35,000 feet up in the air so that when you crash, it is spectacularly devastating. And that's what it can be like, isn't it? I don't trust him. He doesn't have the character or competence. How can I trust him? And that, I guess all I can say to that is, you have to trust God. In a national survey, men were asked this question. 
If you were forced to endure one of the following, which would you prefer? Number one, to be left alone and unloved in the world for the rest of your life. Or number two, to feel inadequate and disrespected by everyone. 75%, three out of every four men, would say, give me the second form of of torture. Um, Did you know this about husbands? Most husbands would tell you, I would rather live with a wife who respected me and didn't love me than a wife who loved me but didn't respect me. Why is that so? Is it because we have such frail male egos? Yes, partly. But I think there's another deeper reason, and that is men are built for significance. There is something inside of every single man which longs to know that what he is doing in this world matters. Like he goes out into the world to make his mark and to do something that seems important and meaningful. And what a man, more than anything else, needs in a spouse is a wife, is a wife who will believe in me. We need someone who believes in us. We, we need our wives to be our biggest cheerleaders and not our biggest critics. And when men hear repeated criticism, it doesn't take long for them to interpret such criticism as my, my husband is an idiot and I don't respect him. I heard this from one wife before. She said to me, Pastor, as a mother of young children, I am forever trying to make my kids understand right from wrong. Do this and don't do that. I never realized how often I had been projecting that onto my husband, mothering him. In all honesty, I, I don't think... He knew how, how to even explain that that's how it was making him feel. I just totally missed that he was often being put down. That it was my maternal instinct that was constantly correcting and criticizing him. And I'll tell you this. If you, uh, you go to any counselor and they will tell you, the people who walk through the door, 90% of the time, it is the wife who has the, the major criticisms of the husband and not vice versa. 90% of the time, it is her. Not to say that those criticisms aren't even justified, but that's the way that it is. So that's verse 18. And I know that I've only scratched the surface of verse 18. There probably could preach five more sermons on it. Uh, how you do decision-making in a marriage. And what does this mean about uh, vocation? Is this telling us that women can't work outside the home? Is this telling us that women can't be CEOs of Google? Um, no and, and no. And there's probably so many no's I could go on and, and give you. But then let's just move along to verse 19. Because this was the ra- radical part. Guys, I'm going to speak to you right now. And I hope you will listen to me. Uh, these verses are like soap, guys. The more you use it, the less you have. And there is a very serious problem in your relationship if you are having to use these verses. If, you, if you're the guy who keeps having to say, I'm the boss, I'm in, I'm in charge, I'm in the lead. If you use that, like I, actually, I don't think in my marriage I've ever used that. And if you are having to, to do that, you know, you have, your soap is, it just, it disappears in the water. Paul would say, of course a husband is expected to provide leadership for his family. But the leadership you provide cannot be the patriarchal, chauvinistic manner of your time. 
Paul radically transforms your role into a man who cares more about the sake of the members of his household than he does about his own sake. And that, what is the, what is the example that Paul gives us of that? It's the example of Christ. What a privilege that you get to lead in love like Christ and to not be harsh with your wives. You are to love her. I will say that, hopefully I will say that 10 more times in this sermon. You are to love her and she is, she is to feel, to be, she needs to feel that she's loved. One of the greatest problems I see in marriages today is husbands who, over time, become completely non-relational. You know, he's detached. He loses interest. There's no friendship. He goes to work. He comes home. He goes into the garage. He plays with his toys. He watches TV. He goes to bed. It's non-relational. Tell me if this story sounds familiar. I know a woman who was divorced quite a few years ago, but then this, a new guy started pursuing her. At, at first, she was pretty cautious. She was in no rush to get back into a relationship, and she didn't think this new guy was the right type. But he was persistent. He kept wooing her. There's no other way to put it. Put it. He just kept pursuing her. He was very attentive, and he made it clear that he thought she was something special. And that he wouldn't be dissuaded that easily. He sent her flowers all the time, which was one of her things. And he dropped her little notes of encouragement. And it just made her feel so special. He pursued her steadily like that for several years. And she saw all these terrific qualities in him. And she fell hard in love for him. And then what happened? (laughs) They got married. And almost immediately, she began to think, Who is this guy? (laughs) Something is wrong. All of those little things that said, I love you, he stopped doing them. There were no more flowers, no more notes, no more pursuing. It's like the guy, once they got married, he suddenly stopped caring for who she was as a person. How many of us are surprised by that story? Not a one of us. Because it is so commonplace. It's almost like every guy is a fisherman, and as soon as he, you know, throws it out there, lands earth, brings it back into the boat, then he's off to find other fish. No, brothers, your wife needs to be loved, full stop. And there is a nagging question in her mind, just like there's a nagging question in your mind. Does she respect me? Will she follow me? There's a nagging question in her mind of whether or not you really love her. And just like we as Christians needed the continual assurance of God that God really loves us, we need to hear that more than once a week. (laughs) So too does a wife. And almost inside of every good relationship that I've ever seen is a husband who frequently expresses such love. She needs to know that she is the most valuable person in this world, And she is the top priority in your life. And it's a very easy question to answer. Is she your top priority or not? It's either yes or no. And you really don't even have to think very hard. It's either yes or no. She wants to be loved. Does she feel loved? So another story. Back in September, we had the meeting, the last meeting of Presbytery. And the pastor who I respect more than anybody else 
in the world today. Uh, oh, that's a, that's a high, high statement. Um, I'm a total Tim Keller fanboy, as you know, and I'm a total, he's not known anywhere, but Rob Rayburn, the, the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Tacoma, Faith Presbyterian Church in Tacoma, who's been pastoring there for 40 years. Rob's on the verge of retirement, and he was addressing our presbytery. He preached to us. It's probably the last time he's ever going to speak to our presbytery, because I think he'll retire within the next year. He was preaching as a preacher to preachers, talking about how powerful our words are, what a powerful tool they are. And he gave the most sensational illustration of this. And this is long, but I really want you to hear it. He said this. When I was in Holland in 1984 for a half-year sabbatical, I was reading a school of Dutch theologians who were in effect the counterparts of the English Puritans. Well, as it happened, I discovered that the world's leading expert on that school of Dutch writers was a man by the name of Simon Vandervelde, who had just retired from years as a professor of theology at the University of Utrecht. So with encouragement from others, I called him and I asked him if I might come down to Utrecht and interview him, ask him some of the questions that had accumulated through my reading and my research. He said, sure. He, He spoke elegant English, was a devout Christian. He was happy to have me come. And so we set a date for it to um, to take place. Upon the appointed day and the appointed hour, I found myself outside his Dutch row house. I knocked on the door and so began three of the most charmed hours of my life. We spoke about many things related to Reformed theology and its historical development. And I have remembered ever since many of the things that he said to me that afternoon. But when I got home that night, one of the things I confided to in my diary was that I learned more about Professor Vanderlyn's wife than I learned about him. He talked a lot about her. He told me where they had met and what a wonderful woman she was and what he, had lo- what he loved about her. At one point near the end of our afternoon, he offered me a copy of one of the volumes, some published essays that he had written, and he had inscribed in the, um, uh, the front corner of the book, uh, you know, to Dr. Rayburn, a small present from Utrecht, 7th of June, 1984, Simon Vandervelde, co-pastor. He took me to his bedroom where he had the copy of this book to give to me. And while we were in his bedroom, he stopped by his bed and he picked up a framed picture of his wife off the, off the bedside table. And there we stood, a world-class scholar and a wet-behind-the-ears American pastor. He was showing me his wife's picture with tears in his eyes And he said that he never went to bed at night without thanking God for her. And do you know what? Mrs. Vanderlind had been dead for eight years when I arrived in that man's house. As I reflected on what I had heard and seen, I realized that he hadn't begun to speak about his wife like this after she died. No, what I heard was the echo of their married life together. That is the way that he spoke to her. Only that can explain why he was still speaking that way about her eight years after she had died. And isn't this what God wants for all of us? A marriage of holy and happy love all the way to the end and even beyond. A love so strong that its momentum is still governing the surviving heart eight years after the other is gone 
Amen? What characterizes that kind of marriage? It is, it is this speech. It is this kind of speech. It is this kind of heart. For out of the overflow of the heart does the mouth speak. And what Professor Vanderlyn was saying was that his wife was bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And while, as the proverb says, while many women do excellently, my wife surpasses them all. <laughs> if you loved her like that, she would follow you to the moon and back. <laughs> Where does that power of love come from? We know it comes from being so loved by God. And if a husband or a wife, for that matter, is not secure in Christ's love, then we cannot love as Christ requires. And we will have no resources for serving others if we are, are not sure of our standing of, of love in Christ. Our being loved and completely accepted by Christ, that is the fuel that is put into our engines, that makes this even possible. And of course, if we are not filling our engines with this fuel, then we fuel, then we're running on empty, and we will inevitably suck energy out of the life of our marriage rather than, than giving it. No, we don't have the strength necessary to love like this in our own, but we have Christ. I'll say this also. I'm really, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled that guys in our church are starting to get together to drink beer and talk theology. Um, what do we have? The uh, brew night is coming up. I've, I RSVP'd Isaac and I can't remember the date, but it's, it's on the horizon. We get together and we're talking about the book of Romans. I love that. I, you know, actually, All Saints has never had in the history of the church a robust men's ministry. And I think this is a, a first step in that direction. I love that we're talking theology. I just wish, I wish that we would talk also about how we love our, love our wives better. Um, because that's really where the rubber meets the road. How, how do we love our wives like this? Um, ladies, I'll say something to you. And, and it's, he can't be everything you want him to be. Nearly every one of us comes to a point in our academic career where you are trying your hardest and your hardest is a C. <laughs> You're taking a calculus class and you're doing all the homework and you're going and seeing the TAs and you're doing study groups and the very best that I can do on this test is a C. And maybe that's a very imperfect analogy, but, but because of the wounds that we bear from earlier in life, I don't expect that every man will be able to love with the depth that Professor Vanderlind did. And, and, and you shouldn't either. We can all grow in our love, but not, I don't think everyone is capable of the same depths of love. And sometimes it's the perfectionism of a wife and her expectations that even dampens whatever love might be offered. Let me finish with this. 
wedding ceremonies, marriage ceremonies. There is something deeply comedic and tragic in every marriage ceremony you have ever been to. You right, think about it. Right in the middle of this beautiful romantic scene is an implicit acknowledgement that there will be days when you want to walk away, which is why we vow. Think about the vows you hear at every wedding. You say, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse. And the reason this is comic is because do you really need to make a vow and say, I'm going to be with you no matter how wealthy you get? (laughs) I'm going to be here for you no matter how healthy you are. No matter how attractive or buff you become, I'm sticking around. No matter how good this marriage gets, I will be here. No, you don't take a vow for that. You take vows for the shadow side, knowing that the shadows will come. For richer, for poorer, there will be bankruptcy. And there will be illness. There will be sickness. And you vow that I will be at your bedside and I'm not going to be leaving you. There's going to be for worse. And in this world, for worse always means because of sin. There will be four worse because of my sin and your sin. And yet I vow to be with you. Friends, I know that no one is lonelier than someone who is in an unloved and bad marriage. I know that because marriage is the vortex of your life. But if Christ is part of your marriage... I firmly believe that it is never too late to turn it around. Now, you don't believe that. You don't believe that at all. But if Christ is part of your marriage, if the Son of God who's risen from the dead is alive in you and alive in the church, it's never too late. The hardest words that you will hear this morning are not, wives submit to your husbands or husbands love your wives, They are, it is never too late to turn it around. That is hard to hear. And yet it is so supremely true. And I invite you, by the grace of God, to believe it. Christ is risen from the dead. He is alive and he is at work. He is powerful. He can change anything. He can change anything. Amen.